turn then to the book of Romans in chapter 2, uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 uh, of <clears throat> this letter. Romans 2, verses 1 to 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, You who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Today today we're thinking of escaping the final judgment. Boris Johnston, our Prime Minister, is coming to our province uh, tomorrow. He is coming to meet with uh, political parties and to seek to address the concerns uh, which they have to seek to resolve the impasse which we currently experience in our province There are some disgruntled parties with the current protocol. There are other parties who feel injustices with the assembly not being formed. The Prime Minister, who has powers which the local politicians do not have, is coming tomorrow to seek to address the grievances, injustices, concerns of the local people. And the dominant theme of verses 1 to 16, which underlies this whole section, is that coming of Jesus Christ to address the injustices in our world. His return in power and glory at the last day to summon all peoples before him and to announce our eternal state and destiny. And this morning we are thinking of escaping the final judgment in the sense of not being condemned on that day, but entering into the glory and rest and joy of heaven. It seems evident in 2 verse 1 that the apostle is moving to a new group of people whom he is addressing. We've been thinking of him addressing the Gentiles, people who don't have a Bible, they don't attend church, in verse 18 to 32 of chapter 1. His intent in this section is to prove that every single one of us is guilty before God. People without a Bible, without a church, still have the revelation of God in nature and in their hearts. They know there is a God. They know the wrong they do deserves God's judgment. So they are, Paul argues, without excuse. But he moves to a different group of people in chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. I would argue that he's referring to a group between Gentile and Jew known as the moralists. That is, our neighbor who is good living, who doesn't go to church, who doesn't read her Bible, 
but yet is kind, is nice, is interested in your children, caring about your stresses. They're not a Christian. They're not in Christ, but they're good living people. What about those people? Some commentators think Paul is addressing the Jews in verses 1 to 16. He doesn't mention them until verse 17. But John Calvin maintained it was this group in between the wild Gentiles given to idolatry. There was this other group like Cornelius, kind and generally upright and seeking to do good and yet not a believer in Jesus Christ. And so it's a really useful category for us to think about, to understand, to ask and hear the question answered. Are they guilty before God? Or will their sincere desire to be kind and neighborly be accepted by God? What is their standing before Almighty God? And we want to think today of two misconceptions which this group of moralists have as they anticipate standing before God. And then we want to see the way that the apostle sets out that we should prepare to meet God. So how might our neighbor, my neighbor, think of meeting God? How might they be at peace with that prospect? What misguided belief might they hold that they are ready to stand before the Almighty. One misguided belief that they might have in verses 1 to 3 is that they condemn the sins of others. That they condemn the sins of others. Now now we, we can hear the apostle dealing with this in these verses. We can imagine what's going on as he lists those sins in chapter 1, those wild sins, those dark sins, the apostle is anticipating that many people whom he's encountered in his missionary work and who will read this letter are on his side. They're approving of his condemnation of others. They are shouting out amen in the pews as Paul lists these wild and dark sins Of some of the Gentiles. But now Paul comes. To consider them. Who believe that because. They condemn the sins of idolatry. And other sins recorded there. That they believe that they are prepared. For the final judgment. He comes to examine. Their hearts. Their lives. Paul is using a a special linguistic tool. You see how he begins the chapter, you have no excuse, O man. And then in verse number three, do you suppose, O man? It's a a linguistic tool known as diatribe. Uh, Those of you who study English might want to be interested in that. It, It was common in the first century. And the philosopher, in order to teach his pupils, would have an imaginary person that they address and, and, and converse with and allow the pupils to listen into. And, and the pupils would get the philosopher's point as they experience and listen to this imaginary conversation. 
And Paul is doing this here. It happens all the time in, in our house. <laughs> it would be great if people picked up things after them. <clears throat> and yes, we get the message. Pick stuff up after you. And Paul is doing this. The old man. It's not John or James or, or whoever. It's this type of person. And he's letting us listen into for them and for us to get the point. This person who's different from the person in verse 32 who knows that the things that the apostle has mentioned are evil. And though they know that they're evil, they approve those who do them. But this moralist is a very different person. They recognize that the sins listed are evil, but they disapprove of those who do them. So this is a different level, a different kettle of fish here, a different style, a different person. The moralist who condemns, not approves, condemns the sinful practices of others. What's Paul's response to them? Who believe that they are ready to meet God because they tut tut at the outrageous evils of other people. His response is twice he says it. You do the same things. And do you think if you do the same things and condemn others that you're going to escape God's condemnation? The moralist does the same things. How can this be then? Well, some moralists are hypocritical, aren't they? They condemn the sins of others while secretly doing them themselves. Do you remember the MP who, who was shouting in Parliament about getting up uh, adverts for betting sites on his phone, wanting this banned until he was informed that you only got those adverts if you had visited the sites in the first place? Sometimes people who condemn sins in others are actually secretly guilty of the same sins themselves. Do you remember Shakespeare speaking about this in Hamlet? Methinks the lady protests too much. This outrageous, vocal, violent condemnation of someone else's wrongs was betraying the fact that they themselves were guilty. Paul says, you're condemning others but you yourself are doing the same things how do you think you're going to escape God's judgment but it can be taken in another level of the same things not referring to the idolatry that Paul mentioned and those other dark sins sexual sins but to verses 29 to 31 those 21 vices which the apostle described, and every one of us are found within that list. Haughtiness, 
boastfulness, ruthlessness, heartlessness. We find ourselves in that list which God condemns. So the moralist, applauding Paul's denunciation of the dark side of the Gentiles, is actually rebounding on them. They're condemning themselves. One biblical example of this was King David, wasn't it? When he took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be his wife. And Nathan the prophet came along with his interesting story about the man who had many sheep and he stole from the poor man who had one lamb. And David leaps off his seat and says, I will sort out that injustice. Nathan says, you're the very man who's guilty of that injustice. David condemned others, but in doing that, he was condemning himself. Are you a pronouncer of the evils of our time? The words, isn't that awful, are frequently on your lips. The war in Ukraine. Emilia Sandy announcing her female partner. The police investigating Starmer and Johnston. Isn't that awful? Quick to condemn. Quick to latch on to the faults of others, the sins of others. And forgetting that we're not just to read the headlines, but to read our heart. Forgetting that we're not just to judge others, we're to judge ourselves. Franz Lehart said, it is wrong to use the vices of others, even their worst, as a screen for our own faults, even our slightest. So here's one wrong belief which the moralist has. They condemn the sins of others. But in doing that, they're showing that they too are guilty before God. But a second area in which the moralist operates is by having a false assurance of safety based on the patience, kindness, and forbearance of God in verses 4 and 5. The kindness and goodness and forbearance of God is well attested in the Bible. We read together from Exodus 34, verse 5, God's words to Moses, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The very, very, very same words are used in Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And the moralist argues, well, here's a God of love. He will sweep things under the carpet. He will find a few marks for me if I haven't just made the grade. He is kind, he is forbearing, he is patient, he is good. 
The moralist looks at the many blessings in her life, in her family, in her health, in her employment. There is no major judgment. There's no fire and brimstone pouring down from heaven. They see God's goodness to her. And she falsely argues that this will continue forever. That this patient God, that this kind God, that this good God will be there waiting for me at the final judgment. Paul argues that they're misusing these attributes of God. That they've got an error in their thinking. And he's arguing this from two ways. Firstly, he is, is arguing that God's forbearance for them is that it will allow them time to repent. That God is not bringing judgment down on, on their sins and, and their, their wrongs now so that they have the opportunity to receive his saving mercy in Jesus Christ. You remember the message of Jonah to Nineveh, 40 days. Not half a day, not one day, 40 days. But that patience, that kindness of God had an intention that they would come to repentance within that period as they did. The moralist is wrongly arguing, God is patient now, kind now to me. So many good things in my life. When I stand at the judgment, he'll be the same God. No, says Paul. There's a reason for his patience with you. And that is to allow you time to repent. The second reason for his patience is to encourage us to repent. That he is this God that when we come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, he will receive us. The God who has blessed us in so many ways is a God who is good, a God who is gracious, and this encourages us to come to him. You remember the prodigal son in the far country? He thought of his own condition and his treatment of his father, but he remembered how his father treated the hired servants. They have got more than enough bread, he said. And that display of his father's kindness to the lowly hired servants encouraged the prodigal son to come to God. The moralist is wrong in his thinking. That the patience, kindness and goodness of God is there and and will be there at the final judgment. There's a reason why it's here to encourage us to come to God and to give us time to repent and seek his mercy. Parents use this expression, don't they, to their children. You're trying my patience. And their point is that this patience that I have, Mary, it's running out. My patience is here for a purpose, for an intent, but it's not going to last forever the way you're behaving. And this is Paul's argument here. Yes, God is patient. God is forbearing. But he won't be at the final judgment to those outside of Christ. 
The Old Testament is full of an incredibly monumental example, isn't it? The people of Israel before the exile, they believed that it didn't matter what they did because they were Jews, because they had been given the law, because God had chosen them out of all the nations of the earth, because they had the temple, Jeremiah 7, they had this song, this ditty, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We've got the temple. We'll be fine. God has shown kindness to us. And Jeremiah and Amos and Hosea warned them that God's patience with them will run out. They need to seek him. They need to return to him. They need to humble themselves and receive his grace and mercy. So the moralist, by condemning others, they think they are fine. The moralists, by looking to the patience and forbearance of God, think that at the final judgment, they will fare well. The wrong ways to escape the final judgment. What then is the right way? The apostle indicates this for us in the verses before us, in verse number four, to lead us to repentance. This is the way we prepare for the final judgment by repentance. Acts 17, 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The way we prepare for the final judgment is by repentance. Well, you say, Paul hardly ever uses this word. He uses the word faith. And that is right. But repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance emphasizes that the negative side of turning away from faith in Jesus Christ emphasizes the positive side that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the way we prepare. When one word is used, the other is implied. When Paul uses faith, he implies repentance. Repentance, he implies faith. Repentance, faith in Jesus Christ alone is the way we prepare for the final judgment. Repentance has an intellectual element. We see the sins God condemns. It has an emotional element. We express sorrow and revulsion in our own lives and society to those sins. It has an element of our will. We turn away. Our life changes. A new direction is taken. But crucially, it's God's patience that leads us to repentance. That assurance that he will receive us and forgive us. And that in Jesus Christ, he has provided that Savior. Rebecca Vardy has been crying. Rebecca Vardy has been expressing regrets about actions in her life. Is that repentance? 
Is that the repentance of verse 4 which gets us ready for the final judgment? It's not, is it? This repentance is a recognition of our sins, not against man, but against God. And a turning from them unto Jesus Christ. It's more than shame. It's more than regret. It's a deep-seated aversion to all that God has condemned. The desire to honor him and glorify him. You don't need a Damascus Road experience. You don't need a time or a date to look back on in your life when there was this incredible change. The crucial thing is, do you repent now? Are you a repentant man now? Turning away from what God condemns to Jesus Christ, the Savior. How do we judge the faults of others then? There's undoubtedly a propensity in ourselves to judge others harshly and ourselves lightly. Jesus spoke about the speck in our brother's eye and the log in our own eye. We see others' faults so clearly, but our own faults rarely exist. Rabbi Burns, he desired, didn't he, that we would see ourselves as others see us. That would be a start. But it'd be best to adopt the maxim of Martin Luther. He wrote, The unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. The righteous look for good in others and overlook good in themselves. If you're a Christian today, let's not presume on God's kindness and patience. Some sight, let's sin and God will forgive us our sin. Let's rather adopt the principle that he has been kind to us and we don't want to hurt him. Someone who has loved us so much, we want to please him. Let's not abuse his mercy, patience and kindness, but respond with gratitude and devotion. If not a Christian... Don't be fooled into thinking that the blessings God has brought to your life and experience indicate that he will not be a stern judge on the last day. Is repentance ongoing in our life then as a Christian? Or is there one sin that has gripped you, that you cannot shake off, that you love, that you nourish, that you cherish? Jesus calls on us. If your eye is offending you, pluck it out. Be radical in dealing with sin in your life and evidence that you are ready for the final judgment. How are we preparing then? Are we preparing by condemning the sins of others? Feeling good as a spouse when we hear of the marital infidelities of Wayne Rooney. Thinking we are doing well compared with him. Just ask your wife about your faults, your failings, your sins. Are we presuming on God's love? 
He'll let everyone into heaven. You think, you believe. Will he? What about Hitler? What about Putin? What about you and I who have transgressed his holy law? Are we preparing the only right way for that final judgment? Using regularly the words of the tax collector in the temple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When the family met Boris Johnson last week, the the lady that was imprisoned in Iran for for six years, Nazanin, partly extended because of Boris Johnson's gaffe at the time. Journalists asked the family as they emerged from 10 Downing Street, did Boris Johnston apologize? And the husband, Richard, said, not specifically. But you and I, friends, by the grace of Christ, can do much better.